out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the legendary singer-songwriter. It is the one and only Melanie or sometimes Melanie Saka, or even Melanie Saka Shekarik, just in case you're feeling very, um, well, completest, really. So this is the interview, and um, as you know, um, after several minutes of casual chat that you have, in the world that is showbiz, we got down to that very exciting subject that was birthdays. Yes, you didn't expect to see hear that one. Yes, because I was talking about the fact that she was born on the... 3rd of February 1947. Interesting fact, I hear you say, well, it's a month after David Bowie. So, um, at that groundbreaking comment, this is Melanie. Sit back, relax, enjoy. It does go on for a long time. Anyway, make notes. I will test you at the end. Melanie, it's over to you. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yes, wow. he, was, he was born in January, you were born in February. 1947 a fine year actually a good year yeah but the interesting thing is because um i suppose talking to david bowie here um yeah you know there's those moments in life which kind of have have a great effect and i know with people like david bowie whenever anybody ever used to say what was your kind of moment where music became a big thing he'd always say little richard what was what was your kind of moment where suddenly something kind of clicked and you went, mm, this is interesting? Yeah, I, I guess it was when I had my first. Uh, I didn't really think you could do music as a way, especially a person. Uh, I didn't kind of fit in the image of what I thought was pretty, and um, you know, celebrity type stuff. So I never really thought that there was a, a I didn't even know how one would go about becoming a, a singer or a songwriter or any of it so um, it wasn't as promoted as it is now they have a school of rock you know and wealthy parents send their kids um, to the school of rock to sound like Janis Joplin or um, Jimi Hendrix or something and you know it, it turns out um, future celebrities, but there wasn't anything like that. Parents would strongly discourage their kids from being in the arts altogether. It was that time, you know, it was, that's no life for anybody. <laughs> and they were right. They were really right. Yeah. But um, people, you know, now it's like, uh, there's a whole, whole generation of parents who think their son or daughter is the next you know, Jimi Hendrix or Janis Joplin. So, uh, you know, they're encouraging it. But it's it's that, it's a different um, motivation. Yes. Motivation for, for me was to get my music out there, but there was no reality on how you could do that. So I, you know, I, I just always sang. I sang when I was a little girl, um, my mom, and my uncle taught me how to play a ukulele when I was four. <laughs> and um, I went from a ukulele to a guitar. There was no motive, you know, no thinking that, uh, my mom, I think in the back of her head might've thought I was the next Shirley Temple. 
because because I she took me to tap dancing lessons, which never really panned out. No, but um, she you know just thought I was as cute as a button, and um, I sang. I could I could learn songs, but I had this uncanny ability at four to learn the lyrics to torch songs, you know, uh, Billy Holiday songs and um, verses of folk songs. And my uncle was a very um, union organizing songs of labor person. So I learned a lot of um, Woody Guthrie songs and Billy Holiday songs. And, uh, but I, and I always sang and then I would write my own songs and uh, Hold on one second. I'm going to another location. <laughs> and so I, yeah, I learned um, other songs and uh, wrote my own. Yes. So did your, were your parents then, obviously? Cause, cause oh, I didn't answer your question. I'm so sorry. No, so the, <laughs> the moment of when I realized, um, you know, that I'm going to be making music uh, happened when... Sorry, I'm still moving here. Um, so it happened when I met uh, my husband, who was um, a producer. He had produced hit records and up and coming hit records. And uh, he worked for a publishing company called Hugo and Luigi. Mm-hmm. And uh, they had written and produced songs for Elvis, and they wrote Fools Rush In. We're plugging in here. Okay. Right. Yeah. And um, so they were, you know, they hired Peter um, to be their producer because they were busy writing Broadway musicals or something. So I met him uh, through a chance audition. And uh, I was really going for an acting audition. (laughs) My father wouldn't have me just stop schooling and he wanted me to go to college and do a liberal arts program but I, I absolutely refused so he's he wouldn't hear of me not going to school so he um he we found an alternative I wasn't uh, trained in music I wanted to pursue more musical training but at that time uh to get into a a Juilliard or a, a music academy, you had to already know how to read and write music. You had to be schooled in music. And I, I had just learned by ear. So yeah. I wasn't qualified in that way. But the the, the second on the <laughs> option might be acting school. That's kind of similar, you know. <laughs> so I, I went to acting school um, and I met Peter through a chance uh, audition. I was very shy and, and very, very much an introvert and didn't really see going to the auditions. After I graduated from the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, I was in a, an apartment with four girls, aspiring actresses, and they would answer these casting calls. And I would look at the, uh, the trade papers and nothing seemed to indicate to me. So I one day saw an ad for a girl that um, they needed a girl to play Barbara Allen in a very esoteric play called Dark of the Moon. Mm. And I knew that play and I knew the song. 
and they wanted a girl who could play the guitar and sing. And I thought, this is too bizarre, you know, because they, girls playing guitars and singing was, were not the name of the game then, you know. It, yeah. it, very few girls played guitar. and It was Joan Baez, that was it, you know, and she was considered a real folk singer. And, um, and I was not Joan Baez. So I... Um, Anyway, I learned uh, Barbara Allen, of course, as one of the folk songs that I learned. And I thought, this is a sign that I need to go to this audition. And um, even though I had never done well <clears throat> with music, uh, auditions, um, I, I decided this was the one. It was like a calling, an omen, you know? Yeah. So I, I went and I realized when I got to the building, that I was, um, I, I knew the, na the name of the building and the number of the building, but I didn't have an office number. So um, I knew it was being put on by the, the directors and actors guild of New York or something like that. And there was a doorman outside of this grill building. Now, this is a very uh, deco ornate bronze covered, entrance and the doorman had had a full out uniform with epaulettes and and a cap and everything and i wa i watched him for a while thinking i might ask him if he knew where this audition was being held in that skyscraper and um I, i'm watching him and he had what we would probably call now tourette syndrome he would say a very pleasant good morning mr so-and-so and good morning this something or other and then he would kind of under his breath mumble some little obscenities <laughs> and i watched him for a while and i was a little afraid to go up to him and ask because of this thing that he had and um but finally i just did because i was going to be late if i didn't find this place and uh, I. I went up to him and it was really like, you know, when the motion of the, of the screen stops and there's like maybe like slow motion yeah. and you see that it zeroes in on the faces of the two people talking. And I looked at him, I said, do you know where they're auditioning for Dark of the Moon? Uh, I'm going to be late and, and I've got to get to the, the right place. And he looked at me and he said, Go to 511. They're always doing weird things there. And so on that direction, <laughs> I went to 511. And 511 turned out to be the um, offices of Hugo and Luigi, and who had just hired Peter. And we met and we fell in love. We got married, and I had a hit record. I mean, it was it was kind of written by Hollywood because your mother, but your mother is a was a jazz singer, wasn't she? So you must have had quite a musical household. Well, we we, you know, she sang, but she sang just step sitting in in clubs in Greenwich Village, and uh, you know she would go to the jazz cl clubs, and I would go and sing in on Washington Square, and and there were very few people doing that. Uh, mostly they would be in the the clubs, you know, the fat black pussy cat and the cafe wah. And yeah. um, so I was, uh, I, 
I didn't have the nerve to go in there in those places. So I would just go on the street and sing. And because I had such a loud voice, I would attract a crowd. But um, again, I was too self-conscious and um, I'd be fine when I'm singing. But as soon as I stopped, I just wanted to get out of there. So I would just leave before I did things like pass a hat or anything like that. Yes. So um, nobody, I didn't get discovered in the village, although I did sing in the village. And my mom sang in jazz places and uh, she sang in the Blue Note and uh, once with Sam the Man Taylor. And I, I, I mean, she was, I got my shyness from my mother. She was also, you know, a very uh, quiet person, but she sang. You know, and um, I guess I got to live my mom's dream life. Yes, well, this, this is good. Did you, was was there a, because you've got that Italian heritage, were, were you sort of quite influenced by people like, you know, Frank Sinatra and, and the kind of the, the sort of, the crooner, I suppose, those kind of. No, not so much. Uh, I mean, my mom certainly played Frank Sinatra. She loved him, but she, she played a lot of um, Billie Holiday. Right. And uh, Bessie Smith and uh, uh, Peggy Lee. She loved Peggy Lee because Peggy Lee had a very lyrical, musical voice. And, um, uh, you know, even, uh, I don't know, who were the people? I, but those were the big ones. Those were the big influences. And I would, um, I grew up listening to those things. And uh, Lou Prima. And Keely Smith, you know, um, and uh, I, ju I just had that in, you know, that was just part of my upbringing. And um, my uncle, again, was he was a, a labor song person. He was uh, in the teachers union and uh, he was, you know, played a lot of, uh, he played the guitar and and did a lot of labor songs, a lot of songs by Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger. And so I had all both of those things going in my growing up. So I got that kind of a mix. You know, I I loved um when I when I got a little older I found Edith Piaf and Lada Lenya and those people I was very influenced by them, as well as a pop singer, Brenda Lee. You know, oh, yes. she was totally um, a, an influence on me. Yeah, and did and did kind of any of the kind of the beat writers? Did they start to sort of come into your kind of? Not yeah, well, there was, of course, I was in the village, you know. Yes, and, um, and I just wondered if Black people like Kerouac and, and Ginsburg and, and and that kind of um, the the sort of that sort of change in that movement and I suppose the very early, you know, youth culture. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, at that point, people like me were called beatniks. <laughs> yeah. Was, didn't have, there wasn't such a thing as hippie yet. And um, I never really liked hippie. I, I much prefer a beatnik <laughs> or, you know, oddball or whatever people called people who didn't quite conform to the set of what was going on. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so uh, I I was yeah I I I loved Richard Brodigan. He wrote um, Watermelon Sugar, and uh, he had a, a short life, but he he wrote some really influential 
books for me. And Kurt Vonnegut was very influential. I met yeah. him later and, and I couldn't I couldn't talk because I had read everything he wrote. <laughs> and you know, when you're so impressed yes, with something, it's really hard to <clears throat> get past that. It was was it Slaughterhouse Five, wasn't it? That was his big one, wasn't it? What was that? Slaughterhouse Five, was that? Oh yeah, Slaughterhouse Five for God, sure. I thought I'd got the wrong author. I thought, well, oh, that would be brilliant, wouldn't it? <laughs> No, you can't. Can you? Yes. Anyway, I know. I didn't. I didn't have time to Google that. But hey, I got it right. But then, as the sixties progressed, you know, I mean, were you? I know this might be a silly question, but you know, were, were the Beatles? Did they suddenly appear into your sort of living room and think, "Oh, that's interesting." The British invasion. These guys are. Pretty- yeah, I was not really into the early Beatles. Um, that was sort of a high school thing that girls did and I I sort of went the other way you know I was still listening to Joan Baez and, yeah. and Billie Holiday so um but Brenda Lee was a big one with me I really liked Brenda Lee and uh, but the Beatles was a little too girls screaming and that kind of thing kind of turned me off so uh no I wasn't a, a early Beatles fan. I, I got to appreciate their songs later, those songs. Yeah. But, um, well, did people like um, Lonnie Donegan and early Bob Dylan and, and even Donovan, did they start, and Al Stewart, did they, um, those kind of singer-songwriters, did they start to sort of influence Bob Dylan at that point, when I first started, was really the only uh, person who was uh, singing their own songs. Yeah. I mean, again, mostly, um, you know, you thought I thought of um, pretty glamorous people being the singers, and most everyone else did too. And the writers were the, um, you know, the funny-looking people in the back room. I know. And, this is this is true. Yes, it was the the and, real and period. So there wasn't such a thing. There wasn't a term singer-songwriter, uh, mm. and it was. It might have been pre-Donovan because, um, and again, to me, the thing was a little, uh, 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 kind of was like a bit too gimmicky or something to, to appeal <laughs> to me then. We, we became friends later, yes. later, and we sorted all that out. Good, good. Uh, no, I, I love him. He's an yes. amazing guy, eternal, and goes on forever. Yes. And um, I'm... Uh, uh, but but the singer songwriter wasn't a term, so I was actually called the female Bob Dylan because I wrote and sang my songs. But um, I, at the in the early uh, times, especially um, in the states, uh, musically, politically, uh, not politics, government, politics, music business, I became on the outs. And I, I never, I didn't even realize that was going on, but it was. And um, I was not on the right side of the Kinney parking lot people, who, who somehow, you know, it was all getting um, very big business, maybe corporate, maybe not so savory types entering into uh, the music industry, uh, legal people heading, heading. Uh, labels rather than the music people that I was involved with at first. Mm. So uh, anyway, you know, there are political games that get played and I was on the wrong side of that 
and uh, so Underground Press kind of slammed me and never mentioned that I wrote the songs. I would always like when they reviewed um, it for Rolling Stone, they wrote a horrible review of Candles in the Rain. They said that the song was great. Again, they didn't give me credit for writing it. And the Edwin Hawkins singers were unbelievable. And Melanie sounds like a fingernail scratch on a chalkboard when she comes in. And I, I really, it, it hurt me so bad because I thought the Rolling Stone was like my people, you know, yeah. these are my people, you know, but, um, and uh, to, to, and it, oddly enough, if the, biggest audience um that i have other than kids you know born again hippies i call them um that are people who are the younger brothers and sisters or the children of the person who had the album because they were not the uh, subject to the the negative kind of press that was being uh put out on me Mm. They, they they just slighted me. I mean, Chris Novoselic from uh, Nirvana said that I've been carefully airbrushed out of history, and it it became true. I was the first uh, independent uh, label other than the Beatles, and I was a woman. I opened my own record label. That totally flew in the face of of the record industry. I had no idea I was making so many enemies, wow. and so. My, my PR was being affected by that. And as we know, PR can be everything. <laughs> it's, it's a tricky one. Because like, just going in that period, like 67, you know, this was a kind of a great turning point, wasn't it? Because it was the summer of love. And, you know, in January, you had the... Um, I thought it was 68. I thought 68 was the summer of love. <laughs> Am <laughs> no. I wrong? Yeah, just just by one one year, but that's not it. It's you're close. No, but because '67, there was the um, there was that gathering of the tribes in San Francisco in January. So um, and then in July there was the the 14-hour Technicolor Dream in London at the Alley Pally, and I think that's when the Beatles brought out Sgt. Pepper. So things were going well, and then obviously, as a bit most things, it all starts going slightly sort of murky because there was you know far too many drugs and then you know Charles Manson and and you know by the end but then but 60 68 was your first album so you must have been feed but there was that wave wasn't the honeymoon period we call it um where, where everything is going so terribly well so was that period of like 60 66 67 when you were sort of probably writing that album were you feeling like you were on this kind of the great counterculture that was happening during that period I was uh, not really doing uh, much in music at 66 and 67. I was, again, I would go to the village with my mom and uh, just hear things and uh, Sun Ra and avant-garde players and listen to Lenny Bruce, who was um, a, a very irreverent, irreverent, sorry, yes. but, um, <laughs> comedian and, I mean, he's famous, his quote is, uh, how can you, because they were trying to stop him from uh, exposing things through humor. And, um, but he, again, being irreverent, he would use foul language. And so um, he, he, I think they arrested him for saying the F word, you know, and, he, and he's quoted as saying, how can you, um, 
if you can't say fuck, then how can you say fuck the government? <laughs> so, yes. I mean, you know, that was my, those were influences. And again, I was reading and I was, but I wasn't really doing a music as a career or anything. It was just, I, again, I didn't even think that a person like me could ever do that as a career. I wouldn't have known how to begin. It was just because I met my husband and all of these circumstances, I, I sometimes I say I, I didn't pay dues on the outset of my career. I paid dues at the end. <laughs> so now I'm, that's that's where I am yeah. right now. Because in that, that period where you're, you know, you, you sort of get, you know, get together with your husband, who's also the producer, that was when roughly at the same time, Joe Boyd, who was an American in England, was had produced the first uh, Pink Floyd single and then he went on to work with people like Nick Drake but he also did work with the Incredible String Band so there was obviously this kind of underground more underground than the Beatles and the Stones and, and the Doors so there was this other kind of more acoustic kind of scene that was happening wasn't there? Oh I loved uh, my Karen and Robin I thought they were I loved their music absolutely I thought they captured that whimsy and playfulness that um, I only hoped to be able to do, you know, yes. and um, I, I think you can hear influences of the incredible string band in my music. I know you can hear uh, Kurt Weill and Bertolt Brecht <laughs> in my music and Lada Lenya and Edith Piaf and Billie Holiday. You know, again, it's it's all those influences. But yes, there was this, um, I'm not, you know, an anthropologist, so I'm not even going to begin. But I, I, um, I can see what you're saying as, uh, as there was this sort of more, um, uh, not very big celebrity people, but the, the quieter, more seemingly real. Yes. Well, I suppose with every scene, you know, there's that, oh, this is what a, say, a punk should look like. And other people go, well, that's one idea of punk. But some people go, no, you have to have a mohique, you know, have to have the studs and the leather coat. And some people go, well, no, I think punk was just do your own thing. And, and the hippie thing quickly, you know, not completely, but there was that element of like, you've got to be kind of, it starts to get heavy and psychedelic and it's all a bit kind of hedonistic. And then there's the other side of the counterculture. Which, which is just as kind of interesting, if not more interesting, because it, it doesn't sort of go into a, a very convenient three-minute pop song or rock song with a wah-wah pedal. So that's why I was sort of talking about the Incredible String Band and yourself. And, and right. And I, well, I think the, the, the 60s, it's funny looking this from this far in the yeah, future, <laughs> back at the 60s, I think you can, um, you can see that there was the the Hollywood Austin Powers what the 60s were and then there was the um, uh, the real what was going on you know uh, a, a near renaissance on earth you know there was big things in the works and yeah. uh, people actually felt like they could change the world not because they were wearing Nehru collars or <laughs> Oh, you're still there. Oh, God, you're gone. Okay, he used to go away. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Um, 
Did, did that ruin everything? No, no, but there was a bit no, of a gap. Okay, my my phone rang. I'm sorry. No, just, no that's um, fine. <laughs> but yes, so, yes, Austin Powers. That was one. Yes. Yeah. Well, there was that that sort of um, view of what the '60s were. You know, the sort of a fashion thing. Oh, that was the time when people wore bell bottoms and big uh, collars on their, you know shirts and and that's what that was about now especially in england i think it was very much um flavor of the month things started to emerge you know? yeah well i but, think it was um, carnaby street because but, but the also the interesting thing you had in the new york scene there was also the velvet underground and andy warhol and you know nico mm -hmm. and yeah and, and then you had on the west coast you had you know theater companies like the coquettes with you know that kind of incredibly crazy scene going on, which was kind of like really pushing the boundaries of just about everything, and then you obviously had the sort of you know San Francisco and the Grateful Dead, and and so that obviously when we look at the sixties, it does have that like wow, you did pack a lot in, and at that same time, you know you you brought out three albums almost in three years, and then played at Woodstock, and and going from kind of a singer songwriter to suddenly appearing in front of half a million people it was quite a jump, wasn't it? It was quite, you know, that's quite a lot. It was unbelievable. And I, I really, I, I was praying that this wouldn't happen <laughs> the, whole, the whole day. I was uh, in a tent with the dirt floor in a box. And um, I mean, I have only memories of people coming in every once in a while saying, you're on next. and thinking, how am I going to get out of here? I was all by myself with a guitar, uh, equipped with three chords. You know, it wasn't like I was a guitarist. Um, and I, I implied a lot with the way I strummed and sang, but I didn't have it uh, actual, in actual fact. You know, there was just implications. And... Um, I, all I wanted to do was make it go away. I oh, wanted yes. to get out of there. I, I got to the festival early, right after Richie Havens was singing. I heard him and I had only, uh, I hadn't met him in the village, but I heard of him and he had a, a, a little cult following. And um, so it was natural that he would be there. Uh, but I, I shouldn't have been there because I was an unknown person with one song that maybe 1% of that audience had heard uh, because of a DJ in New York named Roscoe started playing a, a, a single, I guess, that he had gotten from CBS. But it was after the fact that CBS basically didn't get it i mean it was the beginning again of lawyers uh starting to take over the record business you know it was not um a music person who was the head of a and r but a uh, on the right side of the music politic yeah. that was in charge and it was it became a not a a and r wasn't so much finding really good talent but more um, of what was supposed to happen, you know, what I they could control a little more. Yes. And it, it, it wielded its head um, right around the time that I emerged. So I was first shut down 
um, by CBS and I went to Buddha Records and uh, Neil Bogart and Peter hit it off and they both got what I was doing and uh, they re-released Beautiful People. But before that, it was like a turntable hit and that was all anyone, if they knew anything about me, had heard of when I went on that stage at Woodstock. Yeah. So look, just on that, that point, and then what was it, you know, I mean, are you able to sort of remember what it was like to sort of go, oh, okay, I've just, I've been in a few coffee bars, I've been in front of 20 people, possibly 100, and then suddenly you're walking on a stage, and it was a pretty chaotic event, you know, I mean, Michael Lang, I mean, you know, wasn't the greatest organiser, let's face it, but I mean, he did put on an amazing show on that occasion with, him, you know, with, with the other people, but I mean, I think they only had two toilets and one burger van, didn't they, but, <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, it's insane. In fact, I, I wondered, I keep thinking about this. I, where did I go to the bathroom? I don't remember. I don't yeah. remember if I did. You know, I, I think know. All, I know. all body functions just stopped because I was in such terror um, that I, I really did think that when it started to rain, um, the chipmunk or one of those MCs made some inspirational announcement how uh, Hog Farm, which was a collective, was passing out thousands of candles and they should all light candles and keep the rain away or something like that. And um, I was hearing it, but not really absorbing it. But I'm, I was thinking that people will go home because yes. it's raining <laughs> and that I really won't have to do this after all. And I'll be able to go back to England and work on a film score that I was working on. And everything was kind of, I liked being behind the scenes, you know, but um, I, I, I was really wanting my music to be in front of people, but I didn't really want to be the person who did it, you know? <laughs> so um, yes. here I was in this reverie of thinking that, you know, everybody will go home when they, called me and this time it wasn't a false alarm because all day long they had said Nick, you're on next and then it wasn't happening so uh, you know the terror was mounting throughout I would the day I would, I would be by the time I went on I, I told this story but I, I was aware that um, there were certain radio stations and things that didn't want me to tell this story because it would be just left out of the interview, but I had an out-of-body experience and I wasn't doing drugs, so it wasn't from that. It was um, just totally from, I guess, fear of certain doom. And as I walked uh, that plank, you know, it was a plank, it was a rope bridge. Um, I, I felt like this is the end of my life. And uh, I left my body, I wasn't there. I watched myself. I watched Melanie, the body, Melanie, walk on the stage. I watched her sit down and I hovered over her shoulder. And it was my being, my spirit, you know, that was alive, as alive as the body, in fact, more so, because that's where the, the thoughts, emotions, and it was all coming from the spirit. Um, and the body was just a body. And um, I watched her and I, at some moment, entered my body again. <laughs> and I sang in front of 500,000 people. And I always felt like because those people got to see me 
leave my body and come back, that somehow that resonated because the reaction to my songs was unbelievable. It was just incredible for an unknown person to have that kind of response in um, not any kind of preconceived idea that this, oh, this is my favorite artist, you know, I'm uh, excited to see them, but I was nothing. I was just some girl who sat on the stage and started to sing. And um, the, I resonated with those people. And I, you know, my, my life was never the same. I walked on the stage an unknown person. I walked off the stage a celebrity. Mm, that was, yeah, that was quite amazing. And also, this was on the first day at one o'clock in the morning. And you just, you'd followed, was it Ravi, Ravi Shankar? And then... Um, Ravi Shankar, right. Which must have been quite an experience. There must have been, because you had, there was the Monterey Pop Festival, which I think had happened in 67. So obviously we were sort of getting very excited. I mean, I was only three at the time, so I wasn't that excited. <laughs> um, but, then, <laughs> but then, yes. So, so there must have been, you must have felt a very cosmic energy with, with being there and... and it was kind of absolutely incredible. When I became one with myself again, um, and I looked out and I saw the candles being lit and coming toward me in this, it was just a, an affirmation, you know? And um, I, 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 I was never afraid again, you know, to, to um, it was all put in perspective, you know? Yeah. So, this was my awakening, really, my first awakening um, about, I, I had always been interested in spiritual things. You know, I was born Catholic and I wanted to be a nun <laughs> at one point, and, which totally freaked out my mom and dad. <laughs> oh, <Yes>. no, <laughs> um, because they weren't very religious. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I... I I was very interested in spiritual things, you know, uh, Mayor Baba. Um, yes, and, absolutely. And so many of the different spiritual leaders. And I, I just, I, I, I was, would say, I'm, I believe in everything a little bit, you know, because it seemed like everything stopped short of, of what it is, you know, hey, wait a minute. After all this, we're all going to die? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't like it. <laughs> Something's wrong. So, yeah. um, you know, you just kind of quest for, for an answer. And um, can, you, been, can, can you remember the, um, when you wrote Beautiful People, by the way? Was there a, was there a particular day and it all just kind of came, came together? It, it for followed you? a particular day and, and it all led into each other. There was the great blackout in New York City, and I was living in New York City, and um, my roommate and I uh, got emergency candles from somewhere, and we decided we were going to help uh, the people in my apartment building, you know, the old people who were all of probably 40 <laughs> years old, <laughs> but ancient, I, you know, we were going to, ancient people, four 40-year-olds <laughs> that were probably terrified, so we were going to hand out candles to help old people, and um, we we did, and we went out on the streets, and there was this feeling of 
you know, is it was a totally safe feeling. There wasn't any anything about um, it wasn't like we were uh, doing dangerous things. And you know, you'd think New York in the uh, would be a pretty dangerous thing to go out in the dark and maybe there'd be all kinds of things happening that happen and uh but nobody seemed everybody seemed so giving and kind and there was this um i guess any kind of um deviation from the norm you know and and the, the threat of danger because you're in the dark and uh, nothing's lit uh so there was this feeling that we had to band together as as a human race um and there was nothing more human race at that time than new yorkers <laughs> yeah. So, um yeah we so that uh, that was the night before i had the next day i got on a bus and uh, not a subway but a bus even though i refer to subways and beautiful people because i did take subways as well but um there was a, a, a lunatic who got on the bus as, as the special kind of lunatic that is only exists in New York City. And um, he started spouting off things and people who would normally just look down at their newspapers or not pay much attention or avoid eye contact or anything, um, started you know, paying attention to this lunatic. And little by little, everyone was kind of looking at each other and kind of giggling and laughing and I kept thinking beautiful people beautiful people and um I went home after that and wrote the song uh, it was it was from those two experiences of a shared humanity yes that's amazing because I guess it's um yes I mean just around that time I suppose no, just before then. No, after then. Joni Mitchell had written Woodstock after not going and then seeing it on the film, didn't she? So um, all the weird. So um, I'm missing. I'm missing this somehow. Um, could you just slow down? <laughs> yes. I was what saying, did you just say? Oh yeah, I was just saying it was around just after that because Joni Mitchell had written her one of her anthems, which, which was Woodstock. After she didn't go to Woodstock, but she watched it from her hotel because um, of various reasons and that that was the inspiration so I suppose you'd also had a similar experience of seeing um, well experiencing one thing and then seeing something else the next day and then putting the two things together and creating a song relatively right. quickly I guess I did it all just kind of like oh that's the song I've just written it I I think that um well, with, it's funny you say Woodstock because uh, my husband and the record label wanted to call the song Woodstock and I wouldn't have it because I said, no, I, 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 it's about, you know, candles in the rain. That's what it's about. And it should be called candles in the rain. I finally, I gave in to the, letting them put lay down in front of it because um, they said, well, the chorus at least, you know, say lay down. It should be called Woodstock, Melanie. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I probably would have been very smart to call the song Woodstock, and uh, but it, I didn't do that. And um, but it, it that my particular experience at Woodstock was a lot more. I wasn't an observer. I was, uh, you know, a participant. It. it to my core, you know, I, I knew something 
bigger than what we think of as life um, yes. is happening. Yeah. But with beautiful people, yes, it was the culmination of those two experiences of the blackout and that bus ride where I, I did see a video. I wish I could tell you the name of it, but it was, I think it was French and uh, it's about somebody who comes on to a, 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 a public transportation thing. I'm not sure what it was with train or bus and they uh, start doing ridiculous things and little by little people uh, become connected with it and uh, it had that same same feeling of it that describes it perfectly um i have to remember what that is it was a very short little uh video a couple of years ago it happened and people were sharing it but uh it, it there's there was this uh, you know when you realize that no matter who you are and what walk of life and what socioeconomic group you're in, there is a shared common denominator. And when that gets awakened, I think it puts us in perspective and it unites us. And um, I am sure there are very, very large powers that be that would rather us not. Yes, this is true, this is true. But look, then you have your, you, you talk of ley lines, well, possibly, but then you, you, you end up coming to Glastonbury Festival in 1971, don't you? Yeah, so I kind of became like the festival queen, you know, because, <laughs> I, because of this sort of phenomenon of who the hell is she? And then all of a sudden, you know, I wasn't on Woodstock, won the movie or anything, or the album, because they didn't even, you know, even though it was a, an amazing thing that happened, they didn't see it, you know, because I wasn't a, a box office draw yet. So um, I did make the second one, I think. I never did see that, but, or hear the second album. Um, but I, I just became, you know, this uh, later on when it all happened. Oh, but what was your question? I'm sorry. Oh yes, I, I was just talking about ley lines because then you you come about oh, yeah the oh, next festivals, year right. you, you come to yeah. the, the Glastonbury Festival, one of the very early ones. I'm not sure if that's the one. Yeah, the one of the early, right under the the there was a pyramid and it was magical and um uh, yeah this was uh, I mean I truly did believe that we were headed for um. A renaissance on earth i mean this and festivals seem to express that there was still this magic you know um and you know i, I mean people did say that the, the charles manson thing uh, kind of put an end to it but i i didn't i mean i, I do feel like there was some weird again powers that be force in there and i'm not sure what that is and i don't even want to talk about it but um i i i, I there was still this huge population that saw that the value of our us being united yes absolutely and then yeah because there's a lovely clip because i've seen the glastonbury film quite a lot of times and there's that lovely bit with you know michael evis on the phone you know, being very sort of lovely towards you, saying, well, whenever you turn up, that's fine, just come and... So can you remember much about that occasion? 
uh, yeah, I, I got there and I hadn't slept, you know, it was, you know, a long trip down there. And uh, I, I got there in the day and uh, Michael Evis uh, let me use his, um, his house so I could take a nap and um, be ready and get ready for uh, doing the show that night. And um, everybody was so, I felt like these are my people, you know, <laughs> again, these are my people. Um, and there was this real life feeling of the world is going to change, you know. Yes, well, actually, just because during that time, I mean, like anything, like the 60s that had that explosion and then obviously, and I, I didn't, you know, I, didn't, I don't know if I did an interview. I did it. I was talking to Barry Miles, who did a lot of stuff in the 60s. And I said, what happened with you in the 70s? You sort of dropped off the, the kind of radar. You were so on it. You know, you were you know, organising events. You were doing publications, alternative newspapers. You know, you, you know, he said, actually, we were just really tired. We just, we'd, we were just exhausted by, by 1970. We all just wanted to sleep. I think he, you know, I mean, he did say that. And he, he seemed quite genuine. I think he, you know, just, there was a lot of, you know, so much had gone into that short period of time and they'd seen so much. But there was still that undercurrent in the UK of like wanting to be, go back to nature, wanting to sort of embrace the ideas of ley lines and stone circles living community, live off the land. So obviously, you know, you would have represented so much about what that meant, you know, the, the acoustic quality and the sort of the meaning of your lyrics. So you would have become kind of almost like this, this um, figurehead almost, a, a kind of, um, yeah, you know, somebody who people would have looked up to and have sort of paid real attention to all your lyrics, which were becoming, you know, broached quite a lot of different subjects. Yeah, well, it, it was an odd time. I, I people would, uh, you know, this they were on to uh, sort of toward the middle end of the seventies. It was the new, you know, a new wave punk, um, or you know, it was like everything sixties was made ridiculous, but the media, you know, and so it was. And people would come to my shows and afterwards say, what happened? What happened? And I, I felt that there was, um, after the Vietnam War, our youth culture was, um, well, we could, we were, could be replaced. <laughs> um, it wasn't necessary. So we were meddled with. I really think that uh, it was all about now a style you know, and 80s was anything but organic, you know, it was, it was all uh, uh, production value, not artist value, you, you sort of didn't know one artist from another, you knew that their video, you know, when the videos became, uh, <laughs> video killed the radio star, <laughs> but um, it was, no, it, and, and it's odd because I, I saw a decline in the musicality because um, the use of um, loops and things became uh, the order of the day, but yeah, uh, there was a decline in organic. And and again, I, I think there was an active move to um, 
make anything about peace and love. Uh, it, it was a move to make it ridiculous. In fact, you know, Elvis Costello wrote that song, <laughs> What's So Funny About Peace and Love? But it, it was true. You know, it became ridiculous. And anybody, I mean, I was offered to become the 80s woman by many major record labels but um, you know, sing songs that you didn't write, and here do this ballad, and or dress this way, and do you know because and and it, you know, it was hard enough to be who I was, and get up in front of people and do it night after night, but to, you know, dress up and do something that was not really feeling like me. Uh, I don't think I could have pulled it off anyway, but it certainly would have afforded me better dressing rooms and um, uh, higher visibility had I played that game. Yes, well, I, I realised, you know, sort of having done this show for quite a few years, the artist is quite, it's difficult because most people have a five-year narrative, you know, and they're in that kind of their zeitgeist moment. But then that movement also changes to another movement. I mean, this is quite simplistic really, but you know, you had the 60s and then you had that kind of glam period and then you had a punk period. And, and you know, like the whole industry and everything kind of like shifts along for various reasons. And obviously some artists kind of can almost straddle it, you know, like I suppose David Bowie. But then in the 80s, his work was not that brilliant because it was almost like, oh dear David, that's that production sound. So I do, re I do realize that a few artists that I really love you know, their 80s period was a little bit like, oh yeah, you're, you're really quite, you don't know quite know how to navigate that period. Because, because you, <laughs> you know, the 70s was fine with you, weren't it? You know, you, you know, things were genuinely going well, even though obviously once you've been in the game for long enough, you, you probably feel exhausted. But then, yes, then a new musical kind of movement happens. Not a movement, but that production quality of the 80s, which was quite hard. Yeah, I think, well, I, I again, I don't think it was an accident. Uh, I think there was a deliberate um, make less of that thing that could possibly unify the entire population. <laughs> I think there was definitely something going on. And um, I, I, again, after the Vietnam War, it was like a wall came down and some invisible battle was fought and we lost. <laughs> This is, yeah, I know, this is true, true. Bizarrely, the great and, and I think that, um, you know, that the whole, with me, I just, I really, I, I didn't have the ability to uh, do the things that the major corporation record labels wanted me to do. So I just became a little more independent and um, neighborhood records dissolved through weird business things. And, um, you know, our, we had a whole floor in uh, the Gulf and Western building, which was a, a distribution uh, for RCA. They, they, it was a conglomerate and RCA was distributing neighborhood records. And at one point we, we, we had to dissolve. And uh, then I just became completely independent. I didn't have, I didn't assign to a label. We would just release things and sell them at the shows and continue. My husband believed in the power of the people. Um, he wasn't 
as aware of how important press was. So he, I mean, because I had such a huge following, um, it, it's fortunate because a, just a very small percentage of that following still knows what I do. Um, and a little by little, I guess kids are kind of hooking on to something that seems authentic and uh, real. You know, yeah. the, I think uh, the motivation is the key because uh, I think what motivated most uh, of the musicians of that time was not a look at me exhibitionism, but um, a genuine wanting to communicate something that was real or finding something in themselves that was real, you know, but uh, questing for the authentic self. Um, and then it became very fashionable to, you know, ha have kids and groom them to be rock stars. <laughs> and nobody in my generation, their parents did not want them to be in the music business, not mostly because they saw it as a very hard life and they were very wise. They were wise to see that. But, um, you know, there were people who, you know, went against that, um, I don't know, bourgeois middle-class ideals of what you should do. Um, and uh, they went and decided they would be musicians anyway but they were going against the grain. And then the next generation was like, oh yeah, my kid is pretty and she sings and I'm gonna dump a whole lot of money into her and she's gonna be a star, you know? And that was the motivation. So the music kind of almost reflects that a little bit. You know, you can see, um, well, yeah, look, um, and now it's like completely deteriorated, uh, but it's all about, industry control because by the time you know a record is out they've already spent hundreds of thousands of dollars they know they are going to make that a success that it's kind of brainwashing you know it's a they 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 know how to do that they you'll play it here it'll be played there you can't get away from a record you know yeah. somehow it's there it's everywhere <laughs> and even though it's one note not very good um, you'll 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 be singing that. You'll get it. But do you, but then sort of you had that call from Jarvis Cocker, um, about thirteen years ago for the Meltdown Festival. So you must have felt really. Was that was that sort of something that came out of the blue for you? That was a little bit of a vindication. I I really really enjoyed that he asked me um, to to be at the Meltdown Festival. Um, and uh, yeah, I thought, this is great. We're gonna just, maybe we'll sing a song together or something, but um, th that didn't get to happen. And uh, it was, you know, it was nice that I did it. I'm glad I did it. And it was an amazing night. And, uh, but it wasn't what exactly what I had hoped for, but it, it was a small vindication. Yes, I mean, it was quite interesting because you obviously had quite a following, because I guess, you must have played in Findhorn in Scotland. You must have a, do you have a follow in, in Findhorn, the New Age kind of centre? No, no. Um, uh, are you talking, Findhorn? Yes, that's the one. Yes. I had always heard about it and I wanted to go and I never made it. 
all kinds of amazing things were discovered there. And I read all about it, never made it there. Oh, what a shame. Yes, and yeah, really. They, they would have been your people. So what does, um, you know, because it's interesting, I've not spoken to a lot of artists in the last year. I mean, this period obviously came at a strange time. Well, it would have come at any time would have been strange, really. So how have you been able to cope kind of emotionally and creatively during the last year and into 2021? Yeah, it's been really hard. I mean, you know, my entire life came to a halt uh, uh, because I toured um, and uh, that's what I did to survive. And also it's what I did to fulfill myself and audiences and connect up again and everything. And I did a lot of European tours, um, especially in the Netherlands. and. it it, uh, it was it came to a completely screeching halt. I, I in fact I had bought my ticket to Seattle. I was supposed to do this major record store day for um, promoting independent record stores because mm. I had a vinyl that was being released, and um, I had bought I bought my ticket. People said, "Oh, you can't go to Seattle. That's ground zero." I said, "What are you talking about?" And um, I said, "I'm doing it. I'm just I'm going as long as the place is open. I'm doing." It. Well, they I got a call that they've cut the audience attendance to 200 people, and I said, "Well, that's okay. I'll do it anyway." So I, I got my ticket, and um, actually I lost that ticket because um, it was one of those that you couldn't refund or uh, anyway. So, um, but I got it and I was coming. And then like the day before I was leaving, they said, it's canceled. We can't, we're not allowed to open. I'm not even sure that place is in existence anymore. Uh, It was called the triple door in Seattle. And, uh, and that was the, the beginning of the end of the tour in the Netherlands was canceled. Um, my record store day promotional thing up and down the east of the West Coast was canceled. Uh, record store day itself was canceled. And um, yeah, I mean, my, my life came to a halt. And Bo Jared, my son, who's uh, my partner, really, we, we write together and make music together. and. Um, at first, you know, we thought, well, I have, I have time to do things, but we were almost like a deer in the headlights, you know? It, it was a strange, you'd wake up and think, why aren't I packing to go somewhere? <laughs> because my entire life, my entire existence was, I would go on the road for a few weeks or a month or so, and then I'd come home, uh, decompress, you know, pack, uh, unpack, figure out what what goes where in my house and uh, cook some food and get all cozy and comfortable and then have to pack again and leave. And um, while I always loved the idea of getting that time to be in my own bed and, you know, eat whenever I needed to instead of during the hours of when it was open, you know, yeah. um, it was just, that whole thing was really nice, but every, my entire existence was that. In fact, that's why I I moved because I realized 
that where I lived was not acceptable. I, I didn't like where I lived. I didn't know that because it was fine enough when I came home, unpacked my bag, and then had a little bit of time and then repacked and left. But it was not acceptable when I was there um, and having to be there constantly. So I, I, it was not the place I wanted to live. And um, it was convenient for a person who went on the road, but yes. I was no longer that person. So I decided to move. So I moved and we were gonna do a, a live stream show and we had to work out all these details. And there was this um, incredible guy who did live streaming for people and he offered to help me. And we did hundreds of tests. His name was Glenn Rotel. And he um, worked with us tirelessly <laughs> over weeks and weeks. We were going to do a Christmas show and that didn't happen. We didn't get the audio quite right. And then we were going to do a New Year's show and that didn't happen. And then it was um, finally the called, I, I think I uh, had the title, the last Saturday of the first month of 2021. And yes, it's a long title, but it was the only commemorative thing I could think of. So it was, uh, we just did that well, last week, I guess. And, yes. Well, it, and it was very, um, it, it was as good as it gets without people being in your face, you know, because, you know, when you're performing live, there's that energy and momentum that builds with the uh, audience response and feedback and the feeling in the room and you know, that acceptance or you know maybe a song has to be developed more and you think I'm not gonna do that one I guess <laughs> or you know but whatever it is that's happening it's and you're thinking on your feet but um, when you're looking at a wall you know uh, it is different. You, I mean, I just have to believe that they're out there, you know. Well, I know. But, um, it's a very it's tricky a, it's one. It's a whole well, different thing. Because I was listening to an interview that um, it was Todd Rundgren was doing. He's doing a tour and he's actually, I think, this is what I gather, that he's actually booked the venues and he's going to go to all these venues and do a live stream from each venue that you can buy tickets. And he's going to, you know, he's going to try, and, I don't know, he went into great detail of how they're going to, because you're thinking, well, what's the point? But he was going to make sure they have, you know, like the, the stage decorated with the, you know, the, the kind of, I don't know, the cliche or the theme of that particular town. So he was literally going to get on the tour and go to the ho local hotel, go to the venue, do the sound track, as it uh, sound check, as if, if he was actually going to be there with an audience. So... Obviously, you know, this is what his kind of response to uh, the, the pandemic is going to be. Yeah, well, that sounds like a good idea. Um, but uh, I actually, I just did a show with him last year. Uh, he was at Daryl's house and um, he sings brand new key. <laughs> so, so as a surprise, I got on stage and sang it with him. It was oh, good old Todd. Yeah, well, in, in the evening, as it was really great, and um, yeah, I think he said something like magic really does happen or something like that. But it's oh, really a nice, nice night. But um, yeah, th that's a good idea. Uh, what he's planning on doing, we're going to do it more virtually 
because we, we my son became really good at chroma key. That's the one thing he decided to learn was, um, uh, you know, the, the Sony Vegas program <laughs> and do visuals. And um, he, he got very into it. And we actually had a backdrop of, we were going, it was going to be a winter show. So we had like the Alps and pine trees and, and polar bears and things like that. But um, we were thinking of doing a virtual, uh, maybe the, uh, country by country, or maybe, uh, I think the essence is, I mean, I can see that helping me feel like I'm really doing a concert because it, it's very hard to be in your own house, you know, yes. and walk from one room to another and be on, you know, it's, it's different. It's definitely different. I mean, I really would prefer a, a stage curtain and an announcement and even if there aren't people there, I think that would help a little bit. So good for Todd Rundgren. Yeah. We have to be very inventive, you know, to, these days. You have to be inventive. I know. I think he's slightly desperate as well. I think I think every performer I know is, is getting to that point where they feel like they've got to try and do something. Otherwise, they'll go a little bit kind of crazy, actually. So I, think well, I know. And, and at my age, I feel like I'm being forced into retirement. <laughs> yeah, well, absolutely. And, uh, I, mean, I don't want to. I'm not ready. I know. And the one thing, uh, there was one story I've got, which, which will, will make you smile. Because I heard, you know, because you mentioned playing in Holland. But I know my... Um, my partner's sister, she came to see you in Holland many decades ago. And at the time she was a heavy smoker, but you said, look, could no one smoke because it affects my voice. So she had to have a evening without smoking. And I think that was the catalyst for her to give up. So you did have a profound effect on someone's nicotine habit. Aww. There you go. Can you, remember, can you remember saying, no smoking, it's gonna wreck my voice? Can I remember saying what? to ask the audience not to smoke that was a time when people could smoke but you asked the audience not to smoke on a tour oh yeah yeah i definitely it's amazing that there was a time when you could go into public places and blow smoke in people's faces i know but, it's, um, we, we, i was we, it always really bothered me and um i think you know there were times when i'd have to ask people please don't smoke because yes, I'm, I'm getting it. I'm breathing it in. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not only breathing it in, but I'm breathing deeply, you know, so it really affects my throat and things. Yes, well, absolutely. And just kind of last, lastly, I mean, almost lastly, I mean, if you could say something <laughs> to an, um, um, an 18 or 16 or 18 year old self starting out, I mean, or you could have said something to, you know, literally yourself that you've kind of learned over the decades. I wonder if there was anything in particular that you would thought, yeah, I would just tell them. I would whisper this in their ear. I'm hearing every other word. I don't know what it is. But yes. if you could just blow that question down. I will. I will. And, I'll, I'll and ask me again. I would yeah, love if, it. If you could have said something to your 16 or 18 year old self starting out, I wondered what that would be, um, you know, with all the experience and yeah what I, I i like that question that's because i think of that all always because um i did a musical called melanie and the record man and it, i uh, co-wrote it and it had a melanie young melanie and i would be called upon to 
give her advice, you know. Um, and I was the narrator. And um, I, I think that the one thing is that when you're when you're young, you're well, especially in the generations that came after television, we became the generations that watched themselves. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So uh, it was harder and harder to be who you really were. Uh, you you were, you know, you were kind of thinking in terms of this is a, a television show, and I'm the star. You know, so I think the there was this, um, and maybe it, it it had nothing to do with that, but I think it did. I think that uh, the generation watched themselves was I was part of, you know, so I think I was uh, dramatizing things and making them very important. It really mattered so much to me what uh, Rolling Stone thought of me, you know, and uh, and it would become important enough to that I, I would like I, I was I didn't even want to sing Brand New King because it, it seemed frivolous and flighty and cute and uh, I was being accused of all those things and I wanted to be more re re relevant you know and more uh, have more to do with um, being a force for a change in the world and not a cute little bit of Woodstock fluff you know yes. um, so uh, I think I would have, I would say to myself that don't take it so seriously. Just express yourself however it comes out. It's going to be right because your musical place is pure. And that's what I was doing. I was just expressing myself in the most pure way. And if it came out um, as a cute little whimsical song, that's what it is. And uh, f funny enough, that I now have, I listened to that song and I think, my God, what a great record, you know? It just, it transcends all eras, you know, because it's so original. And I think that's uh, the one thing that um, people starting in the industry are, are just lacking because they're listening to the voice of, if you want to be successful and have a hit, do this. Yes. And also, I, I would imagine over the decades, you've bumped into other fellow musicians from roughly different decades or even that decade. Have, yeah. you, have you occasionally sort of given each other a bit of a, a hug, possibly virtual hug, and just said, God, you know, we have survived something that's a bit weird. You know, it's been a bit of a weird one, isn't it? Out of all the things we could have done, we went on this route. And though, you know, obviously, like, wow, that's brilliant. And then you think, oh, this is actually quite hard work as well. You know, it, it, it's not made to, to be kind, is it? There isn't a lot of kindness in entertainment and music. No, no. Um, especially being a woman, it is... Uh, well, I came out, out from an era of... Uh, they only played one woman an hour on mainstream radio. Well, what does that do to women? <laughs> it kind of pits them against each other, right? Mm. Your very survival is um, 
if they're going to play you, they're not going to play uh, Linda Ronstadt or, you know, uh, Carly Simon or Joni Mitchell, right? So um, it, it sort of pits women against each other. I, I always found that men um, uh, are a little more easy about that because, you know, they have the, the control as far as, you know, dominating the... Um, Airwaves and things. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I, I guess, I guess you were there against people like Grace Slick, Janis Joplin. You know, you mentioned, you know, Jenny Mitchell yeah. and, and people like that. So you know, when if you could only be be on the airwaves at one hour, where you know the blokes. Yeah, but that was uh, also they were a part of a group. I mean, it was Big Brother and the Holding Company yeah, and the exactly. uh, Jefferson Airplane. Then it was the airplane. Did you, and um, I was I was just going to say, how, did you manage to always, you know, because obviously at that point where you know you were there, you know, very fresh, great, fresh faced and feeling very excitable, and then suddenly, you know, Janice Joplin dies, Jim Jim Morrison, then Jimi Hendrix. Did you think, oh, this is this is a bit weird. I better be a bit more savvy, or, or did that did that affect you? At all, it affected that. me greatly, actually. Um, they were dropping, you know, people were dropping like flies. And uh, again, I'm, I'm, I, I felt like I got away with a certain kind of obscurity, which is was okay. You know, I'd rather be obscure than not alive. Yes, so, um, so anyway, yeah, that was my feeling at, at some some points that um well I got away with obscurity so um even though I'm kind of buried alive I I'm still here and I'm still doing it and there are still uh people who were the younger brothers and sisters of the people who read Rolling Stone and took it to heart um that still listen to the music and they're not they're not affected by the slant and the PR Yes. Uh, but just affected by the music. They didn't get to be slanted against me, you know? Because I, I, I did a, an interview with Donna Gillespie, who was probably around at the same time as you. I mean, she went to much more of a, a blues background, but she worked with people like David Bowie, and she was part of, I don't know, Tony DeFries and his kind of company called Main Man. But then, you know, she, for <coughs> a while, you know, has to just kind of, you know, kind of basically cope on her own without any kind of help. So she becomes a blues singer. But during the her period, she she also gets very kind of influenced by a spiritual awakening as well. Did that help kind of give you a, a grounding in your life to to know how to navigate, you know, a certain period that then gives you the kind of tools how to cope with the rest of your life? Um, I'm not totally sure. <laughs> about what you're asking me, but I, I, because again, I'm just having a hard time <laughs> understanding. <laughs> and it has a lot to do with the muffled sound that I'm getting. I should have had a headset. I think it would have been easier, but um, this is my phone and this is what I'm doing. So I'm making out every other word, but a, a spirituality grounding you. Is yes. that- did, did, yeah. did that come at a time when you felt like, you were slightly either lost or desperate? You know, I always had a strong sense of 
the music being from me. And there was a sort of sacredness uh, without sounding you know, <laughs> overly pompous about that, but there was, there was a, a sacredness about the music. And if, if it didn't feel right, I didn't, I didn't want to do it. And so um, that in itself saved me from uh, selling out. And that was a phrase that people used. No, there is no such thing anymore. <laughs> the name of the game is selling out, but, mm. um, but uh, that there was da less danger of me doing that because I had this inner spiritual voice that, that you know, told me what I could do you know, and what I couldn't do. Um, and again, I might have been a little more diplomatic uh, if I wanted to tell my younger self, be careful. <laughs> um, but I, I wasn't very diplomatic and it's not that I was nasty or anything, but um, I was very, absolutely not. <laughs> I can't do that, you know, sort of thing. But, um, I might have been a little more gracious um, and uh, navigated the industry a bit uh, more delicately. Mm. But uh, I did what I did, and I'm, I'm really glad because I'm still here, and I'm still singing, I'm still writing, and I still feel good about what I put out. So, yes. And, and with your, you know, you mentioned that, uh, that Woodstock, you had your out-of-body experience. Has that been something that's, that's happened, you know, have you had other such kind of moments and experiences where you've just went, oh, or do you often get that when you complete a song or have a, a particular kind of live experience? What? <laughs> yes, I know, I was going to say, I think you, I thought you might not have gotten all that. No, with the out-of-body experience that you mentioned at Woodstock, has that been something that's happened on more than one occasion? And I just wondered if you get similar experiences when you're creating a particular song or you're doing a particular concert, and whether that's something that's been with you all your life or whether... That just happened at Woodstock. No, no. I, I mean, throughout my life, uh, things have occurred and songs just fly out from them. Um, I tend to write a lot when I'm on the road and life happens, you know, random things happen. I, I, I find that uh, randomity, you know, kind of um, is a great inspiration because it's not anything you expect, you know? So you're, you're thrown out of your comfort zone constantly you know, when you're on the road. Um, so it is, um, I draw a lot from uh, life, you know, and, and what I experienced and um, how it relates to other people. Uh, you know, it has, an, there's an analogy, you know, <laughs> to a lot of it. Yes, I mean, on, on just that kind of almost the last bit, I, I listened to an interview with a guy called Jim Tones Earl, and he said that a lot of his songs start as napkins, <laughs> that he writes <laughs> lots of things on napkins when he's on the road because he hears a conversation and then he pulls from his own experience. So he says those kind of like, you'll hear a phrase that someone's just had and you think, 
oh my god that's just amazing and that that could be part right, of, right. <laughs> part of a song i just wondered if you if you're also somebody who can occasionally grab hold of a napkin and get oh my god, napkins just... yes to thank god for napkins because they seem to be available when paper is not so uh yeah, lots of times I'll hear somebody say one disconnected thing, and I'll think, "Wow, that is really profound," you know, <laughs> and um, and just you know, the whole song will emerge from it. Um, it. It's it has may have had nothing to do with the song that becomes, you know, except for maybe the line, the line that you heard, yes. but as it relates to something in our human condition, it becomes something else. Yes, well look, I think um, this has been amazing. Um, hopefully you can hear all this, but thank you ever so much for your time and hopefully you'll be able to come and tour next year in the UK. Yes, me too. I really, really hope so. But thank yeah. you so much. But look, yeah, thank you for your time and uh, look, have a lovely day and hopefully you know you're able to um, focus and make you know get some work material yes yes That's i'm going to be doing live streams in fact there's a a show that i did last summer one of our last shows and um we did this coffee house called the cafe lena oh yes and um, and everybody's performed there bob dylan and joan baez and uh it is a historic place and uh, I, I was doing that between Daryl's house where I met Todd Rundgren and, uh, and the Cafe Lena and we recorded the Cafe Lena and they asked me would I like to let it be out as a live stream and I said I don't know what it's like but yes. <laughs> Excellent. So, so it's, I think it's on February 8th but Hopefully Mickey can give you the link and everything so oh, yeah, that's cool. people will that's come cool. and listen. Uh, oh yeah, just one question. Have you ever been tempted to write your book, by the way? Yes, I am actually in the process of um, writing a book. There's never been one really, except a couple of fans maybe have written <laughs> things they call books. But, yeah. uh, you know, it's just... I, I really think I need to do this, you know, so just tell the stories and um, set the record straight at some point. Yes. Oh, good. I'll look forward to that. Yes. Okay. Thank look, you. Thank you ever so much. Okay. See you. Take care. And bye -bye. See you in the UK soon. Bye-bye. 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 And that is how you say goodbye in a concise and very firm way anyway look i love leaving those bits in um that was me with the singer songwriter melanie um there you go if you want to know any more information you can go to her website which i do believe is what well, just google melanie oh it's melaniesafka.com and uh that's yeah, if you want to know s-a-f-k-a this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, we'd love your messages. You can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Keep it positive, though. Don't, if you can't be bothered, if you're negative, don't, don't bother. And also, I've done lots of interviews over the last couple of years, well, four, five, more. Um, so you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, and Podbean, C86 Show. They're all there and much more. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.